Thank you. The title of this evening's talk <laughs> is What Am I Defending? The, one could say that the pith of the matter, the heart of the, of the Buddha's teachings uh, is encompassed in a, a simple quote from the Buddha where he said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has put this teaching to practice has practiced the entire practice. Whoever has realized the fruit of this has realized the, the fruit of the practice. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So you can also hear in this instruction from the Buddha that the, the heart of what makes our life difficult is, well, two things. One is personalizing everything, taking everything personally, clinging to anything as I, me, or mine. But really at the heart of what makes the ego painful is, is not just the fact of, of having a personality view and a sense of I, me, and mine, but clinging to it. Clinging is, at least in the teachings, and it's something for each of us to inquire into and to verify for ourselves, not to adopt a belief about it, but to really look at it. But uh, at the heart of the teaching is that clinging is the source of suffering. And removing the source of suffering, obvious logic is if, if you have something that causes suffering, if you remove the cause, you remove the suffering. So the point of the practice is to remove the cause of suffering. That is the heart of the teaching. And a further expression of the heart of the teaching is that all beings, if you are born, tend to suffer, tend to have uh, physical and mental suffering. Anyone who's born, definition of birth, the leading cause of mental and physical suffering. We could elaborate on that and if it it's too general, you might think of the, we'll put it in terms of pain or stress, the stress of being born, the stress of uh, having the, our bodies be vulnerable to illness, to aging, to harm. Uh, anyone who's born is vulnerable to all those things to the fact that the body has a, has a shelf life. It will eventually fade away. So if, one, if you're born, you will have a certain level of stress related to having a body. And if you have a very strong identity with the body, if you take this body that is, has arisen according to conditions, if you take this body to, me, to be me and mine, uh, you will have an additional mental suffering 
as it goes through the, the cycles of all the various vulnerable experiences that happen. So if you, on the other hand, opened to the fact that without clinging, without condemning, open to the fact that our bodies are vulnerable and in fact because they arise according to conditions and they pass away and they get sick, old and die not according to anybody's will or wish but in some way out of control, if we see that for what it is and we, we don't hold on to, we just live in accordance with the nature of our bodies and not say this is me and this is mine and hold on to it, we don't suffer as much about it. We just go through our life, we appreciate deeply the fact that this body has presented itself in order with its senses and perceptions, allows us to experience the world, it, it allows us to experience and to have as a, a seat, uh, a place for consciousness to dwell, to then to be able to wake up, to see what's going on in and around us. Without this body, we couldn't do any of that. But yet, this body is not me. It is not mine. This I am not. Yet, for most of us, this is the deepest and strongest identification. And then you hear the Buddha say, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever's heard this, you've heard the teaching. Whoever practices this, practices the teaching. Whoever realizes this. So the direction is to experience life the way it is. It's all about the way it is. It's not about the way we want it to be. If I wanted it to be, I'd want to be able to control my body. I'd want it to never get sick, never age, never die, never be vulnerable to any circumstances, inner or outer, but that's not in accordance with the way it is. So the degree to which I can be in harmony with the truth, I will at least not have the added mental suffering of clinging. I will, of course, experience everything that comes with being born but I, and being a person being an individual, but uh, without the, the extra mental suffering. This is why we examine our bodies. This is why the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. Because this is where the world happens. This is where the cause of the world happens. The cause of the, the world of clinging and identification, the, the cause of the world of endless searching and endless wanting and and this unslakable thirst that just gets fed again and again by our, by our clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to experiences, clinging to the state of, of desire itself. Uh, this is where it all happens right here. And this is where the world ends right here. The world that's created in our imagination, the world of clinging, the world of mental suffering, it ends right here on this very, in this very spot, in this very body. The Buddha is right here. Wakefulness is right here. And that, that realization of the end of the world comes from the realization 
even for one moment in the span of your life, the realization of a heart or a mind that's, that's not clinging, that's not, that's, that's not um, landing anywhere, not holding on to anything. Just for a moment, don't just float. Don't cling anywhere. Don't cling to time, the past. Don't cling to the future. Don't cling to any idea about yourself. Don't cling to the body. Just be present. You've, in that moment, you've come to the end of the world. And you've actually, in that moment, you've, you've walked the path to the end of the world. It's all right here. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So that's just in relationship to our body. But we don't always, we don't just cling to our bodies. We cling to our views and opinions, our ideas. Cling to our various uh, identities uh, our roles, uh, we cling morbidly to our past, to our past experiences. I've never met a person on earth in my, my travels and teaching, I've never met a person who is, um, who is anything other than in essence, beautiful and a Buddha. Even the ones who I don't like so much. We're all, we're all Buddhas. On, on when, we, when you look into somebody's eyes, and unfortunately we don't do it as much anymore. We're too busy in our smartphones. It's just amazing. I just went overseas and it's the same everywhere. Everywhere. Nobody looks up anymore. Even, I was, I was just in Istanbul. And I was in this, it's called the, what's the, it's a park. It's called uh, Sultana Bit or something. It's this park between the giant blue mosque and the uh, Hagia Sophia, huge mosque built back in, you know, 1,500 years ago. And back and forth from, from each mosque is, come, is the call to prayer, just this beautiful song of the heart to the divine coming from one mosque and then half mile down the road, the same call, the, the response coming from the other. And it's absolutely transfixing, just exquisite, beautiful. And I'm sitting in this park, and there's all these people on the bench, and they're in their, they're on their smartphones. <laughs> now, some people are talking, some, some people are posing for pictures or taking pictures, but a lot of people were buried in their smartphones. So it's, it's <coughs> universal. It's crazy. It's something that was not, I don't think it was anticipated that it would be the cause of so much disconnection. And that's one little form of clinging. And that clinging is a very strong identification with our phones. It's an extension of my identity. 
It's the one that, it's the thing that reminds me that I exist, that I'm somebody, that I'm somebody important to somebody else or to myself. And it's a, it's a whole identity. Who would I be without my smartphone? I'll guarantee you'd be a lot happier. But anyway, that's, I don't want to get into that. That's an old conversation. <laughs> So we cling to our sense pleasures, we cling to our, our views and opinions, especially, I think, to our, a lot to our views and opinions, and about, you know, even views and opinions about smartphones. You know, I, I, I'm very identified with my enlightened view about smartphones, <laughs> even though I'm addicted to one myself. <laughs> And this, this, what's that? <laughs> Thank you, Guruji. She said, throw it away. <laughs> yes, but you're clinging to not having one. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, a, a, a beautiful example of someone who doesn't need it. And Noemi, who's speaking, who's telling me to throw it away, she, she has her eyes open. She pays attention to what's going on around her. She has a very intimate, heartful sense of what's happening in the neighborhood and who, who are the haves and who are the have-nots and, and what's happening. It's so easy to become completely cut off from, from our hearts and from our, the response of the hearts, from our compassion. When we're, when we're buried in, in our, in whatever it is that we are clinging to. So the, the fruit of non-clinging, the fruit of letting go, of being present, of ending the world that, of our, that we're constantly spinning out in our imagination, the fruit of that cessation is open-heartedness, is clarity, is stillness, is calm, is peace, is ease. Any moment that our eyes are open, after our last thought has passed and before the next one comes, the last desire has passed and before the next one arises, in that sense of immediacy, there's a, a possibility of, of ease, of openness. You know, when I'm, you know, always, whenever I remind myself of, of, of that, this fact, you know, when I'm in this room, I'm, I'm always just struck by how quiet it is, how simple it is how simple my life is, how simple your life is in the immediate here and now, and how much when I'm in a state of clinging to one thing or another, I tend to complicate my life. But there's nothing complicated about immediate reality. And when I see with uncomplicated eyes 
see you, you see me, or Noemi walks around the neighborhood, there's a little bit more clarity about what to do, how to be with it, how to respond, who needs help. Of course, that's really everyone does. But if I'm, if I'm caught up in spinning, I, I don't see. And if I don't see, my heart can't respond. So nothing whatsoever should be clung to. I don't want to be fixated in anything. In the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, the, called the, the Great Perfection, the view from above, the, the culmination of, the, of, an, of the, the mind of an awakened Buddha, it's called the uh, Dzogchen. It's the awakening to the, the, our innermost nature, our deepest nature, the nature of mind, the very nature of the mind that sits here right now. Its, it's nature is, uh, is unbound, it's free, it's open, it's deathless, timeless, uh, without any limit at all without color, without shape, without height, without depth. It's mind of the Buddha, Buddha, which is your mind in its essence, is, is uh, never, never been born, it never dies, it's, it's free. You are that. And in Dzogchen, the teaching is to be, is to develop your mind to be so that you're you can be introduced to that which you are, that you can awaken to that which you really are. And, uh, and the way it happens is you're introduced to, you're point, it's pointed out to you through the heart-to-heart, the -heart, mind-to-mind transmission of a, of a qualified teacher. In our tradition, the Theravada tradition, Vipassana practice, we realize that nature through our careful attention moment-to-moment. -moment. It happens of course, we don't ever do anything completely alone. We do things with the support of, of teachers as well. But it really, that, the capacity to resolve that, that question of who and what am I, it happens through our practice. And in, in both traditions, that's true. But in Dzogchen, you are introduced and reminded of this, this, uh, this unborn, this deathless nature that you are right here and now. And then it, as you are introduced to that, the practice is to get used to it, is to, is to, is to stay open, to stay in touch with that which you really are, that open freedom, and to clarify, to notice, every single time your mind grabs something, every time that your mind fixates, it tightens, it, you become identified, you become stuck in a view, you become, you become uh, caught up in, in defending yourself and protecting yourself and in building yourself up and putting yourself down and whatever, whatever drama that you get involved in, you want to notice that and slowly, slowly, just keep brushing 
the dust of memory, so that but the dust of all those habits to continually get used to the idea that you are intrinsically free. And all this happens in our Vipassana practice too. Same thing, basically. And when you're doing this kind of practice of knowing that your nature is open, it becomes really clear how many things we cling to as I, me, or mine. And not only do we cling to, to um, views and opinions, not only do we cling to our bodies, but we also cling to states of mind. We cling to meditative states. We cling to states of concentration. Beautiful, but they are, they're places that become a source of identity. We tend to land in a sense of I'm still, I'm calm, I'm loving, I'm shut down, I'm unworthy. As I started to say a little bit earlier, in the span of my life, I've never found anybody on present evidence who is, is anything other than amazing. If I'm really present, I've never found anybody who is unworthy, who is insufficient, not enough, lacking. I've met thousands upon thousands of people who have become identified with the idea that they are lacking, that they are limited, they are bound, they are, um, they are unworthy. Anybody interested in this topic? I'm just curious. So our practice is to, to weed out all of these notions about ourselves. And these are views and opinions. And they often come with a, with a sense of, of, uh, of collapse, of constriction of a kind of grayness, a kind of darkness, a kind of heaviness, that feeling of unworthiness. And, and often these kinds of feelings are interpreted as the core nature of our hearts. But if you practice enough, you'll see that the nature of your heart is open, empty, free. The face of that is just love. But if, we, if we've caught in a narrow view, opinion about ourselves, we think that the core view is, I'm not enough. And our culture keeps, keeps reinforcing the view that you're not enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not smart enough. You're not worthy enough. And of course, if you've been neglected in your life, just the benign neglect, we internalize a view that we're not lovable, not worthy, acceptable. Uh, all those, those views, they get very entrenched, but nevertheless, they are views. They're not the ultimate truth. This is why the Buddha says nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. This, you are not unworthy. Where is that unworthy one? Where is that insufficient one? Where is that the one who is bound, who is not free? 
It's a dream within a dream. You can't find that person when you look for them. But yet you, we experience the, the, the feelings that go with that and then often mistakenly believe that because we have a feeling about that feeling that it really just defines us and describes us, but it doesn't. It's a distortion of perception. And that's what we wake up out of in our practice. And then if you find yourself being really defensive, we, even de we defend even our unworthiness. Somebody tells you you're beautiful. We'll say, yeah, but. As one of my teachers used to say, no more buts. If you just remove but from your vocabulary, you'd be free. No buts. Try it for a minute. No buts. So what we do in our practice is we expand to say that we're, it's not so much we're not this, we're not this, we're not this, we're not this. We're all of it. We have all of these qualities within us, but we're not defined by them. We're not limited by them. Unless we have a, a mis, unless we're misidentified with these qualities. So this is from a teacher named Jeff Foster. Whether you like Jeff Foster or not, these words are very, I think, are very wise. And this is a passage that he wrote called Nothing to Defend. He says, I find truth in anything anyone ever says about me. So nobody can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened. The worst being in the world, I can find all of it. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, Ask yourself this, what am I defending? This inquiry is the key to unimaginable peace. So this is what we inquire into. And I, I think this is just a great practice. I notice when I'm getting triggered now, I'm, just since I read this, since I heard it, I've been I've been just noticing all the subtle ways that, that I'm busy defending. And as soon as I ask myself the question, what am I defending, I can't find it. I can't find that one who I'm defending. It's an apparition. I'm defending in a mirage. All this trying to protect this image of being enlightened or unenlightened or a good person or uh, well-liked or whatever it is, 
it's all trying to protect a mirage. So just ask yourself, what am I defending? Because anywhere we build a house of self, build a house of defense, of, of defense, of a house of special, uh, this is a source of suffering. This is from the great historian Trevelyan. Some would, some, I read about him, some would say he's the most read historian in history. I don't know if that's true. But what he said here is very wise. He said, think not to settle down forever in, in any truth, but use it as a tent in which to pass a summer night. But build no house of it, or it will become your tomb. You want me to read it again? Yes. Think, not, think not to settle down forever in any truth, but use it as a tent in which to pass a summer night. But build no house of it, or it will become your tomb. So to me, I take this as building a, an edifice a house of ego around anything in yourself. Your role, your where, whether you put yourself above others and feel the most worthy, or you put yourself below others and feel less worthy, feel equal to others and you're constantly measuring. We build houses of comparison. We build houses around our political views, our social views, our religious views, our, our gender views, and all those houses become our prisons. They become our tomb if we cling to them. Again, I'll end with the words of the Buddha, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this Truth or teaching has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced it has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever realizes the fruit of this teaching has realized the, realized the fruit of the Dharma. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Because it's an apparition anyway. It's an idea. But we want to not just adopt this as a view, but to see it for ourselves. As I always say, don't believe me. Where is the identity in the body? Where is a me and a mine and an I? Where is a me, a mine, and an I in our moods, in our thoughts, in our, in our roles? Where is it? It's a story. So as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. And as Hafez says, I've learned so much from the divine. I can no longer call myself a Christian, 
a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew, the truth has shared itself with me, so much of itself with me, that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended me so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of any concept or image my mind has ever known. So let's just rest here for a moment, free of any concept or image our mind has ever known, and we too can know the heart and the mind of a Buddha. Awake. May all beings realize the cessation of clinging to I, me, and mine. And with the cessation of clinging of I, me, and mine, there will be, there is the cessation of other and othering. And then we can call ourselves, if we are going to call ourselves anything, we, are call, we can call ourselves the Tathagata, one who knows the suchness of life, life as it is. May all beings know suchness. May all beings be free. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. Remember the question for this week? What's the question? What am I defending? Okay. I want to hear the answer next week. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. And remember, the half day long is this Saturday at the Mindfulness Care Center. The day long is at Spirit Rock this Sunday. So come one, come all. The, day, the half days in the city are a great way to just sit in the middle of it all. And... Uh, you know, practice right in the middle of your life and a day long on Sunday, great opportunity to have a day immersed with nature and teachings. Spirit Rock is a beautiful place to practice. So I will hope to see all of you there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.